Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Gord Glenn of Manova Corp, the TSXV listed developer, soon to be Explorer. They're taking over a previously producing mine and getting into production. Only a five-year life of mine, but the numbers are reasonably attractive. Grades around seven grams. They're going to produce about 46,000 ounces per year over that period and work on their exploration program. They've also inherited a plant. They need about 10 million bucks to get that thing up and running again, but recovery uh, recovery rates seem quite good. Um, in total, probably 30 to 35 million bucks required, project finance and a little bit of equity. Gord talks to us about his business plan, how he hopes to raise that money and how he's going to spend it. Sit back and enjoy the podcast. Gord, how are you doing, buddy? Good, Matt. How are you doing? Long time. Long time. How have things been? <laughs> been great for me. <laughs> long, long days, short nights, uh, managing work programs at the PL Mine and everything else associated with that. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, last time I spoke, you were in South America. Now you are in the country of Count Dracula, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm currently in, I'm currently in Romania, uh, but I, everything's remote control these days. I got uh, crews at the PL mine, and uh, just before this call, I was on the on the on the line with PL for a Zoom call for about two and a half hours, uh, reimagining our exploration potential. Oh, fantastic! Well, look, uh, good to speak to you again. Um, glad you're well. Um, well. Look, we're here today to talk about Manova Corp. Okay, and you're going to talk to us about the PL um, mine and what you're doing there. But uh, just for people new to this story, give them that one minute overview of what Minova is. Sure, thanks. Yeah, so Minova is an emerging gold producer. We're a venture-listed company, MCI.V, emerging gold producer focused on restarting the past-producing PL mine, operated uh, briefly in 1988. <clears throat> uh, we've been, we acquired the project in 2011 and have been diligently, uh, steadily progressing the project through the various technical milestones, NI43101 uh, compliant reports and, uh, and, and related uh, programs to get it to the point where we can restart it, uh, um, restart it. And you're going to be a pause so that you guys can cut. And uh, yeah, so we're advancing the project uh, diligently through the technical milestones. Uh, we completed a positive feasibility study in 2017. It's relatively small mine life uh, based on a reserve base of about 260,000 ounces at seven grams, so decent grade. Um, we didn't go for size initially. We went for uh, time to restart. So smaller reserve base. We have, a, we have a double that in resources, about 700,000 ounces in global resource. And the plan was to get it up and running in a, in a logical way and uh, continue to explore and expand um, based on uh, cash flow or from cash flow. Okay. Yeah. So, right. Okay. You're getting into the next question, which is really about the the, the business plan, what you set out today. I think you're answering it. You're saying we, we had something rather than expand out the resource, we decided we want to get into production quickly and then concurrently kind of build out the resources. Is, was that the business plan? That's the business plan. Again, uh, you talk to different investors. Some people are focused on cash flow, time to production. Some people are, talk, are focused on what's the exploration upside. We have both. 
I don't mean to confuse people, but as much as we're an emerging producer with a permitted, uh, very advanced, low CapEx project in a tier one jurisdiction, central Manitoba, Canada, we're also an exploration company. There's been very little work done off of our, our permitted mining lease in 40 years. And we're evolving, I'd say at light speed based on the calls I'm having with my crew, uh, the structural interpretation of the deposit and controls on gold mineralization. So we got lots of exploration upside. So it's a, it's a balancing act to where do, where do my investors, uh, shareholders, where do they want me to focus? So very close to them. I talk to them regularly. If they want to go to production, we work through production. If we want to just strict, strictly drill and explore, we go that way. Both have costs and, and pros and cons and costs associated with them. And it's really just uh, managing the opportunities. They're both good opportunities. Okay. I think we, it's not a new model. I mean, we've seen this work for a few people. I mean, in this gold environment, we've definitely seen it work for a few people. I think, you know, it's a lower gold environment. It's a little, little bit harder to make that work because the margins just aren't there. So I'm... Um, Tell me about what you know today. So you, this is a previously producing mine. So what data have you inherited? What do you know about what you've got and what do you need to do? Having just completed your feasibility study. Yeah, so the mine operated in 1988. There's about seven kilometers of underground development already on it. Uh, quite frankly, it was in the wrong position. There's a 1,000 ton per day mill in very good repair. All that information, historical drilling, obviously, our drilling to further de-risk and define the reserves and resources that exist on the project. All that fed into the positive feasibility study. That study was done at 1250 gold, uh, 77 cent C dollar or 130 you know, to the US dollar. Um, that all fed into a positive study, but the, but the market wasn't there. Right. And again, I, I'm very aligned with my shareholders and my board. We're obviously cognizant of these things. Um, we're looking at the optimal time to develop the project. And it wasn't at $1,250 or $1,300 gold. So we didn't push too hard. We let the project mature, let the market mature. We all had a view, and I'm talking shareholders and board management, that gold price was going to be higher at some point in the future. We're really focused on the option value of our project at higher gold prices. And I'm talking about the, the mathematical calculation of mine model, NPV, IRR. And then also, what's the, what's the exploration potential associated with a developed gold mine um, and an operating mine? Uh, we have tremendous leverage and tremendous upside to both development at these prices and expiration. But okay, th that, that's the theory of it, okay? And that's the maths of it. But like I say, what is the data that you've got? This thing has been mined out. They, they stopped mining for whatever reason. Presumably the gold price wasn't there for them. But so what did you inherit? What do you know? Why do you think, because this is, you're talking in the feasibility study here of a five year life of mine, which you normally you know terrify a lot of people, but you're saying you're going early in this gold environment. And I, I understand that, that, that that's fine. But what else do you know? Uh, well, we know that the mine's challenges in the time were more to do with the scale of the operation that they envisioned. They, quite frankly, that 1,000 ton per day mill that they built was too big for the mine that they developed. And, and in essence, they overcapitalized the surface infrastructure and they undercapitalized the underground mine development. They didn't have enough mine development, soap development, uh, to feed that mill. They basically... 
uh, proceeded to try to operate at that level and went for tons over grade, and they didn't deliver the grade to, to make the project economic to the mill back in the day. We see this we see this in our industry often oftentimes when people over promote and under deliver, and it's management decision errors at the end of the day. Our focus was on. Um, detailed infill drilling, better geological modeling and controls to develop a, you know, a, a compliant NI-43-101 reserve and resource, an independently calculated um, uh, feasibility study with, with some top-notch, you know, very experienced mining engineers that understand these sorts of deposits. Narrow vein, in our case, shallow dipping, not an unusual circumstance for deposit. The grades are good. The infrastructure is excellent. The location is excellent. Uh, we have many of the positive attributes that, that I would look for or you would look for as an investor to tick the boxes, right? We've got everything there. Do we have scale? Yeah, not, not quite yet, but if we do more drilling and do more exploration, we'll get there. And I think our past press releases have highlighted new discoveries, new mineralized structures, good grades, still wide open to exploration. And as I said earlier, in 40 years, we really haven't stepped off the mining lease to explore the 10 odd kilometers of prospective geological um, formations and structures, structural domains. Okay, look, if, I, if like you said, I think this is a relatively easy story to understand. You either, either like this model or you don't like this model. And whatever your investment strategy is, that, that's down to you. And I, I would encourage people to read your PowerPoint. I, I want to kind of skip through the easy bit because you're just going to tell me what I can read, which is the numbers yeah. at 1250 suggest uh, an MPV5 or about 36 million Canadian after tax, right? Uh, if I goes to seventeen hundred, that goes to about over one hundred and forty million Canadian. So it, it, the numbers are there if you're able to deliver and get into production. I'm looking at the image behind you. I guess that's the plant because you've also inherited a plant. Correct. So uh, significant infrastructure on site. It's really what makes the project's capital so low. Like thirty-five million to restart a mine in, in Canada. You know, you don't see numbers like that. Uh, that's because of the mill. It's because of the location and the existing infrastructure. Uh, the underground mine development is no magic. It's uh, drill blast muck, four meters around. We can calculate that out. Most of the mining contractors that I deal with and, and I'm in talks with, they can map this out very, in great detail, and that number is pretty much big. So of that 35 million, if I break it down to, to sort of give you a sense of how do we get from here to there in a relatively short period of time? 35 million breaks down, 15 million for the underground mining development. So again, properly capitalizing the underground so that we have enough stopes in the stope cycle developed, um, uh, producing, um, being paced backfilled, whatever the case may be. Uh, 10 million for mill refurbishment. That infrastructure that you see behind me, again, it's an excellent repair. The mill refurbishment is really more to do with the electrical. Um, the, the mill was vandalized in the 90s, uh, mostly stealing wire out of the wire racks, um, you know, to, to sell it to whatever for copper. Um, we have to replace all that. We can modernize certain things, new gravity circuit, uh, new components within the mill. Again, no magic. It's a very 
very, uh, uh, call it plain vanilla metallurgy, um, very, very typical of Canadian Archean low gold uh, deposits, uh, 90% uh, projected recoveries plus. When the mill operated, the mill operated pretty good. It was uh, dealing with uh, below head grade ores and they were getting between 80 and 90% recovery. They got higher recoveries when they got higher grades. So a very simple mine and milling process. And then there's another $5 million for surface infrastructure. Um, that gets us to about uh, roughly 30 million bucks. And then about $6 million, $5 million in owner's costs, contingency, first fills, all the usual stuff. So $35 million, it's not a big number. And the other important factor about our project is that we're permitted. We can be literally in production tomorrow if I could magically snap my hands, had the capital and the investment already done, and we would be in production. It's a 12-plus month timeline to production. Again, there's not too many projects out there that can um, can achieve a, a realistically timeline to production that's, that's that short with that little capital and still have tremendous exploration upside. Okay, and the thing you missed out there, that's a 12.50 gold. That's a one and a half year payback. Okay, like I said, people can read that. Here's the bit I want to talk to you about though. Yeah. It's the, you refer to it as leverage number two. It's the potential increase in reserve grade. Okay, so you've got some data, you've done some work. Tell me what do you mean by potential increase in reserve grade? How do you, how do you ensure that that's going to be the case? Yeah, so with, with many of these um, uh, high-grade deposits, you get a nugget effect. Uh, in the, during the original feasibility study back in 1987, uh, SGS, well, Lake, Lakefield did the metallurgy SGS today. <clears throat> uh, they, they estimated a certain grade and a certain recovery, and they split it out in terms of uh, gravity recovery, which could have been up to 60 to 70% total recovery, 95%. So vast majority free gold coming out in a gravity circuit. The mill, when it was operating, they only got about 40%. And they were really struggling with understanding their, their nugget effect, their, their grind size to, to sort of optimize the liberation of free gold. When we were doing our drilling, our diligence, our, our infill drilling during the feasibility study, what we noticed is the geologists would sometimes recognize visible gold in core, or they would recognize uh, very prospective mineralogy or xenopyrite, pyrite, pyrite and would go, oh, this, this hole or this uh, uh, interval assay is going to grade very well, and it would come back lower than expected. So eventually we twigged to and said, just a second here, what are we missing? So we looked at total metallic screen fire assay, which is a much more detailed, very focused on consuming the entire assay and, and, and splitting that assay to capture all the gold in the, in the sample, not just a 30 gram cut of what could be a, a 2,000 gram total assay, uh, total weight of an assay. So what we identified over the course of about 60 samples that were representative across the deposit strike and across the deposit dip was that we were seeing a positive variance in our grade. And it cuts both ways. We had high grade samples um, get reduced and we had lower grade samples get increased. But overall, we saw a, initially a 20% positive variance. And as we did more data, uh, I think we're sitting at about 12 or 13% positive variance. It just tells us that 
that there is potential, there is the potential that the, the reserve and resource grade have been understated because they mostly rely on traditional fire assay um, methodologies. Going forward, we do total metallic screens so we can sort of eliminate or, or, or try not to um, try to eliminate the uncertainty over that. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to you've got to get on the ore, you've got to develop stopes, and you've got to test your planned grade for a stope versus the actual grade that you get out of the stope. It's not significant. It's it's not 30, 40, 50 percent. But, you know, how meaningful is it to you as a business in terms of incremental margin? Uh, it actually is pretty significant. Again, from the original feasibility study, if you go to the sensitivity table in the original feasibility study, um, a 10% increase in the grade of the deposit is almost equivalent to a 10% increase in gold price. So the option val- uh, optionality on, on the projects um, or the impact of the project's NPV from gold and, uh, and a, a commensurate increase in gold grade have a big impact on the project. So we, again, the data is incomplete on that. Like I can look at the gold price and, and do a simple updated gold price le- sensitivity leverage. And as you pointed down earlier at, uh, I'll, I'll just use $2,000 gold because it's a simple number for everybody to, that's in the gold space to target. The project has an NPV5 of over $200 million and an IRR of over 200%. That's because of low CapEx, short timeline to production, the grades are the grades. No change to any other parameter in the feasibility study. If we are able to demonstrate a higher reserve grade, then that number number will equally bump. If we're able, those are just the numbers just adjusting the, the feasibility study. If we're able to expand upon our resource, which is not unreasonable, and, and demonstrate exploration potential, convert existing resources into the mine plan, then adding one year to the mine plan can add NPV $30, $40 million. Again, I'm pulling numbers that are effectively, you can calculate from the feasibility study. It's about a dollar a share because our leverage is not only to to the price of gold going up or uh, potentially higher gold grades. It's also that we have a low share count, and that's been sort of managed prudently over the last seven or eight years. To, to have to offer investors leverage per share, ounces per share, uh, NAV per share type uh, type higher numbers. So I think we've I think we've got again get back to criteria that investors look at for evaluating a project. And again, I think we can tick many many of the boxes, with few exceptions. And the ones that we haven't ticked yet, if I have more money to spend, I'll be able to tick them. Okay. Scale. So talk to me about this process and, and the process of getting the mill back up and running because you've got to do these things economically, right? That means the, the name of the game. So when, when do you know enough about the screening process around the assays to say, well, here's, here's the process by which we're going to economically extract this incremental gold? Uh, well, we can do that right now. Like in terms of restarting the mill, that has nothing to do with uh, um, sort of a forecast or an anticipated higher grade. Again, our metallurgy is fairly straightforward, very, again, plain vanilla. Uh, we could restart the mill uh, as it is, as it stands right now, working with exactly our grades and generate a very attractive cash flow in return. Um, you know, the, the opportunities for us, you know, at the project level are really about exploration, resource expansion, uh, and 
Right now, we're running that six that 1,000 ton per day mill as part of our feasibility study at 600 tons per day. Again, we're trying to right size our mill throughput for our mine. As we develop the mine and gain experience mining, then we should be able to ramp up and basically organic growth from our existing resource base, you know, basically grow into that mill. And then we have a satellite deposit eight kilometers away called Nokomis, which has right now about 60,000 ounces in the resource category. We'll start drilling that this winter time and then we'll work it into a future feasibility study. So I can see our production profile over a five-year period being a little bit less than 50,000 ounces, going up to 60 to 65,000 ounces with no significant incremental capex, really just developing and expanding and converting what we know. So, okay, you're saying all the right things in terms of what you're saying, oh, I know what investors are looking for, okay. Um, but. What's to stop this becoming just another mining exercise where whatever money you make from getting into production early just gets plowed back into the ground, gets plowed back into exploration. There's nothing, there's no upside for investors really. It's just a, you know, a, 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 the mine's ticking over. The exploration's ticking over. Yeah, that, that would suck. Um, and that's not the plan. And that's why, like I crank my model, I flex my feasibility study model you know, once a week, as especially in the last quarter, as gold prices marched up through 1500, 1600, 1700 to where we are today, sort of cuspy 2000. Uh, the project cash flows again. This is all something that somebody could deduce from the from the public documentation, from the feasibility study. Free cash flow in year one at uh, at 1950 and current exchange rates would be well over 60 million Canadian dollars. Payback less than half a year. In year two, well over $70 million. Year three, over $60 million. It's a, quite, quite frankly, it's a bit of a cash cow. Now, we're definitely going to be allocating capital into exploration and resource expansion. We don't need mill expansion capacity. What we need to do is demonstrate exploration and then regional exploration. One of the things, and I know this from past experience and past lives, I want to attract institutional investors. I want to attract ultimately um, a potential M&A from a bigger player that says, hey, Gord, that's an interesting project. 50,000 ounces a year doesn't really do it for us. What do you got in, what do you got in your back pocket? Do you have 100,000? Do you have 150,000? I'm talking a little casual here. But the point is, is that if we explore from our cash flow, I think we have a good chance of demonstrating that that scale upside, and that's at the project level. And then one of the things I didn't really highlight here, Matt, for you, because we're talking really about the postage stamp of the property in the context of the Flin Flon Snow Lake Greenstone Belt, a belt that's been developed over 100 years, so mining continuously for 100 years, three gold deposits. It's lacked competition. It's lacked other junior companies being fully funded and active and competitive in the belt over that entire time where it was really dominated by one company, Hudson Bay Mining and Smelting during the day, what we know as Hud Bay, the public company today. Uh, they would have been looking for base metal projects to feed, a, to feed a copper smelter and a zinc refinery. Totally different exploration approach. We believe that there are significant structurally controlled gold deposits in the belt that just haven't been identified because there wasn't a focus or ownership or, you know, an active prospecting and, and junior exploration uh, community. The PL deposit and the work that we've done on that, on the project, 
again, getting very specific, very detailed, looking at new structural interpretations has really afforded us the opportunity to, I think, have a bit of an edge on what we think are controlling structural domains in the belt and one of the longer term, medium long term, uh, you know, targets for the company is to really expand our property position, get big enough uh, with a big enough uh, footprint to really attract uh, institutional investors, more intermediate and senior companies to the to the camp to either look at us for what we have or just to become involved in the camp. Uh, I think any success in the camp on the gold side just enhances our project and our story. Okay, but the, the question I asked you was, how do investors make money? You're telling me ways you're going to spend money, increase footprint, et cetera, ex- explore, drill. So are you aiming for some kind of resource size where people can value you or at least competi- competitively uh, evaluate you against peers? Um, are you talking about issuing dividends or you know paying back the, the cash which you say you're going to produce over the next two, three, four years over this, you know, with, with the initial project. But how, how are you going to, how do we make money? Because I'm not clear yet. Uh, well, number one, I think we're massively undervalued relative to the, the typical criteria that anybody could. You hear that all the time, I know. Um, it's, it's, it's simple. Feasibility study stage project. Go and grab your peer, bro- peer group of similar FS permitted, shovel-ready, basically pending finance projects, and you'll you'll see different multiples, EV per resource ounce, you know, discount to NAV, discount to NPV, pick your number. Our number is low. For what reason? There is no good reason. Marketing, marketing, marketing. That's why I'm talking to you. You're going to make it all better. Um, you know, so that's number one. The, the relative valuation here is, I think, pretty uh, – pretty significant in a rising gold price environment. What we have in our back pocket is exploration upside. We've been releasing, we've had a couple of press releases on that. We've got our leverage to the gold price based on current gold price, uh, current gold price environment. Um, all these things sort of drive value. It's really about uh, you know attracting eyeballs to our story and our development strategy and our timeline to production. So I think people can make money on on an increasing, you know, obviously a Minova share price increasing to some higher relative valuation. I'm not saying we're going to be exactly um, um, reach the peer group that we're in because we're a relatively small forecast producer, but I think we can get much higher than we are. And then if we have the, you know, have a some some further exploration success, develop some new targets, which we are doing, then that adds some speculative blue sky to the to the story. Okay, so we're pretty excited about it. Okay, 46,500 ounces a year is, is not nothing. I get that. But it's for five years. I think that's the problem. When you, when you say, you know, compare us to our peers, you've said we're doing something novel. We're getting to early production. Not a lot of companies go down that route. That That's a problem. So how do I as an investor go, hey, well, they're just like this company or that company. I, I, I can't. That's the hard bit for me. So you're saying to me, well, don't worry. Not only will we be producing cash, which will help fund our, you know, will help fund our exploration program, but also produce additional cash. It'll start making us look attractive to various people. But I still don't know, and I want to know where I make my money. Is it a reevaluation by the market, by institutions, um, on the basis of my exploration success? Um, what's the plan? 
Well, it's, 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 well, the plan is simple. I got two plans and they, they don't compete against one another. They are augmenting one another for the different shareholder fractions that are out there. We are both an emerging gold producer with a short timeline to production and low capex. And we are an exploration company in the shadow of our um, mine development project uh, off the mining lease. Um, you know, so both of those should attract to should be attractive to uh, to any investor, I would think. And you decide which way you want to play it. You want to play near-term gold production and a re-rating and cash flow that's going to be deployed to further expand and 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 explore the prop the property uh, in general, or you just want us to spend money on exploration and get to a million ounces. I personally, I'm an NPV guy. I'm a model-driven guy. I'm a risk-adverse guy. I see a project that is feasible, permitted, uh, very short timeline to production. I want to get to cash flow, but I'm not, I don't, when I listen to my shareholders, I listen to all investors. They want, they want to see the blue sky on top of that. We're working on that right now. And one of the things, Matt, that I think maybe is important to some investors out there, we don't spend a lot of money to get to, to where we need to be, relatively speaking. Like there, as you know, there are exploration companies out there and some of them have, you know, multiples of our market capitalization and they don't really have the assets that we have or they're maybe half our size, but they don't, but again, they don't have the assets that we have. Trying to just get people thinking about what do you want to own? What's less risky? What's higher reward? If I'm able to put in place a project finance structure in the U.S. 20 plus million dollar range, then my requirements for equity are significantly less than virtually anybody else out there to get to production. So I'm not going to dilute the crap out of my shareholders. I'm going to try and get there prudently, strategically, quickly, and, and then have that cash to explore, expand, develop. And maybe there's a dividend out there in the future, which is crazy for a little junior company to say, but the project's a cash cow at these prices. Okay. But in June, you had a hundred thousand bucks in cash. Right. So I need to understand how you go about raising the cash you need with a market cap of 15 million, 16 million Canadian today without deleting the crap out of your shareholders, use your phrase. Um, that, that's a tough ask. You know, you've got to you've got to prove a lot of things to someone who's going to stump up that cash. So what conversations are going on? You know, who's stumping up the cash? What's it going to cost you? And are you going to be able to do all that money at the same time? I mean, what's the plan? Uh, I think any, any project finance facility comes with a you know contingent equity component. Uh, do we have enough market capitalization right now to realistically do that? No, right? Can I have those conversations with uh, project finance, private equity groups? It's been going on for a very long time. I typically don't take a pen to a meeting, as in going to sign something right away, unless I know I can deliver on the contingent equity contribution. But there's more groups out there than ever before. They're all looking for access to near-term, uh, tier one jurisdiction, you know, reasonable gold, gold exposure with projects that are robust. And our project 
I think it falls into the robust category at these sorts of at these current gold prices. So we're having those conversations with multiple parties. We'll see where we get to over the next couple of weeks, couple of months. In the meantime, I got lots of technical programs on the go to deliver news into the market to kind of demonstrate exploration upside. You know, the, the reasonableness of this project, our very attractive value proposition to investors. I would hope that that's going to going to resonate with with investors, and I'll. I'll see more buying in the stock. We've already seen that over the last couple of weeks and months as we've been able to get get out there and talk the story more and get new eyeballs on the story. We got US investors calling me now, US investor taking a US investors, sorry, taking a serious serious look at the project. I got overseas investors looking at and investing in the project. So it's sort of coming together now and it has and honestly the project's been the same for a couple of years now. We're we're expanding with exploration. The heavy lifting is gold price and investor interest. And we're just poised and ready to go. We've, we've, we've prepared ourselves at the, at the capital structure level for today's environment. And I just need to see my share price go up a little higher. And then I think I can, uh, you know, finalize some, some project finance discussions. Again, U.S. 20 million, U.S. 25 million. Project pays back quickly. It's actually pretty attractive. How much money have you put in? Me, uh, <laughs> um, at the end of this quarter, I'll probably own 10% of the company direct. You know, again, I, I haven't paid myself very regularly, if at all. Uh, I convert to equity. I convert to equity as with basically at, at a higher price than, than typical. Uh, what, 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 sorry, I convert to equity at prices that are higher than your typical you know, junior mining company CEO does. I work with my shareholders. I'm very respectful to them. I've got good relationships with them. It's a two-way conversation. I tell them the plans, the the goals, uh, and then I go and deliver on those. They give me feedback if they want to see more exploration. Then I, you know, manage the manage the programs accordingly. If they want me to scale back, I scale back. It's usually me saying scale back if the market conditions aren't good and we're not getting value for their ask. But it's really about, you know, being aligned with your shareholders, respecting them, and quite frankly, trying to fight hard for valuations that are reasonable and fair, both to an existing shareholder, if we're talking about equity financing. I want a, I want a valuation that's fair and respectful to the, my current shareholders and the new shareholders. And I think I can, I can meet both of those obligations and, and continue to grow and, and, and offer more value in the future. So let me be clear, because I want people like this sort of stuff, which is you're taking all of your salary as equity. I, I have to date. I've just I'm in the process of converting a very large amount of money uh, into, again, I haven't paid myself in years, and i got no issues with that. It's really about, you know, call it sweat equity, which is really what it is, and there's been a lot of sweat. Um, and, and, and just getting the project to where it needs to be, not dropping the ball, uh, and if I do drop a ball, I catch it very quickly and get it right back up in the air. Okay. So I think we've managed the project through all the logical milestones. We're in the right environment. We're perfectly able to get to move it forward. And I, I think in the next three to six months, we'll see a lot of catalysts for that, whether it's on the expiration upside or it's on the mine development side. So who are these shareholders that they're telling you what they want you to do? I mean, who are they? 
Oh, my, uh, I'll call them big book retail guys. Uh, you know, um, I got guys in Canaccord. I got guys like usual suspects on the street. I won't name names to, for, for obvious reasons, but if, if I did name names off the record, everybody's head would nod and go, yeah, they, they know their stuff. They know what they're doing. They're there for a reason. Uh, again, I don't have the broadest uh, shareholder base. It's actually pretty concentrated. Uh, but they're all solid shareholders, and many of my shareholders have been in the company before I got involved in the company, which is over eight years ago. And they've been steadfast in the project for for many of the same reasons that I am here today. Uh, is because the project does tick the boxes. It might be small, but small can be beautiful. Small, it just means I have fewer, um, I have a lower dollar amount to raise. I have... I don't have the same challenges as a big project, and I could, ra- and I'd rather see myself get the cash flow quickly and redeploy that uh, to grow at that point rather than dilute uh, and grow. I'd rather get to the production profile and grow, and then there's maybe some M and A beyond that. Okay, come back to that. Um, so, you, are you not frustrated? This in this environment, anything with gold associated with gold is getting financed. Stuff which just shouldn't be financed because the fundamentals aren't there, are getting financed. Are you frustrated that the conversations haven't led to financing before now? Uh, no, no. Like I, I'm frustrated with my valuation, but that's that's up to me to get the word out. Like I do need a receptive audience. I need ears like yours. I need your um, distribution potential, which is amazing. <laughs> But, you know, I need people to understand what the project is. And some people will like it. Some people won't. It's too small for some people. It's it's okay for others. I'm perfectly fine with it. You, Matt, you have to appreciate um, my career. I, I think I've told you this in the past. I was an analyst. I covered everything A to Z, top to bottom. When I was a banker at a bank-owned firm, the focus was always big, 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 big. Big always doesn't work out. Big creates scope and scale problems that many investors don't fully appreciate. It also creates the the risk that the management team has perhaps overpromised and can't deliver on that promise. This project, in my humble opinion, is scaled to minimize the risks. And again, in my career, if if you don't focus on the risks, then you're going to be bitten by them. And we focused on everything that I would consider to be a risk at the PL deposit, which is mineability, continuity of the resource, does it hang together, grade, which is consistent over one, two, three, uh, five resource calculations over the last eight years. And then and that reconciles actually with the resource calculations going back 30 years. So we try to de-risk the project, uh, identify potential risks and mitigate them, uh, overcome them. I didn't even talk about the, the prospects for this project for new things, right? The incorporation of new technology, ultra-low profile mining equipment, uh, battery electric mining equipment, things that will enable us to make the project small and efficient. We're in a region that um, I I wanted to talk to you a little bit about biomass power generating. Uh, Potentially become a green energy producer and kind of be a, a neutral carbon mine. We're in a jurisdiction that doesn't have a lot of employment. It doesn't have a lot of industry going on right now. Uh, We're a little bit further north than Hud Bay, uh, Flintland, Manitoba, but an hour's drive, not that far north. But you're still with limited economic development opportunities. One of our initiatives uh, up there with as part of our CSR program, First Nations, is really working with the First Nations to develop other job 
and economic development opportunities where we can partner with them. So I created something called Manova Renewable Energy, which was really a, a first step in a plan to have a First Nations partner, and we develop a biomass power generating station. That biomass power generating station would sell electrons to the, to the PL mine and mill. Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Um, they, they, they cre we create more jobs than just the mine, and unlike the mine, which I, which right now we got a five-year feasibility study on, I think it'll go for ten plus plus. I hope. Um, but a biomass power generating station can go hundreds of years, right? We're, we're dealing with the biomass up there. It's got a very long growth cycle, like a hundred years. But these plants are feasible in Norway, Sweden, Finland, and other northern uh, latitudes. They'll be perfectly feasible feasible here. And we've got a ready, willing, and able workforce, both local uh, local communities and First Nations. So it's all kind of ways that we think about doing good for the communities, good for the environment, and minimizing our footprint. Well, like, come back on and talk to me about that one, because I, I, I'm intrigued by the kind of ESG component that miners are trying to implement and instigate uh, within their operations. It, it can be a distraction. So I do want to understand how you're going to, how you're thinking about going about it so it doesn't distract you from core business, which is making money, getting gold out of the grounds. But I, I am I'm intrigued by that. Um, well, I'm intrigued by the project um, generally. So look, good. I'm, I'm going to wrap it up there because we've taken up enough of your time today. I do appreciate that. But uh, come come on uh, again soon. I'm serious about I would like to understand the biomass component. I think the ESG is very, very interesting, very, very topical at the moment. So uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Matt. Terrific talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.